Uh, I want to start by welcome everyone here. Welcome to this session we'll have together. Uh, first, I want to direct a big thank you to ISPIN. It's great to be here and for you inviting us to this important discussion to focus on the cornerstone of what we as researcher can understand and contribute with to the innovation management field the method and to really have the opportunity to dig a little bit deeper into how we perform the research and, and new venues of data and, and ways of uh, analyzing data. My name is Jenny Björk. I am an associate professor at KTH, the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, and I'm also the editor-in-chief for Creativity and Innovation Management Journal for the last six years, together with Katarina Hulsel and Harry Boer. And I'm delighted uh, to present the persons in focus here today, Tim and Christina. Uh, Tim uh, Sveinfurt is an associate professor uh, in high-tech business at the University of Twente. You spend a lot of your time focused on data and technology-driven innovation, and also at the early phase, focus on ID generation and evaluation system, and also a lot about where we are venuing today here as well when it comes to distributed and collaborative innovation. So much welcome, Tim, and also have done a lot of research together with a lot of firms here. Hi, Tim. Good to have you with us. And then we have Christina Rash. You're an associate professor of digital economy at the Kuhne Logistic University, uh, but you're also connected to the Kiel University of the World Economy. And you have focused extensively on how digitalization changes innovation processes and outcomes, both inside and outside the firm, which we also will dwell deeper into here today. Most welcome, Christina. <laughs> So we will have a discussion here today about a very interesting paper that two of you published in SIM last year. You actually received the Tudor Richer and Susan Moger SIM Best Paper Award last year. So congratulations to that. And um, uh, we will dwell today into your contribution here and especially with a method focus. Uh, and um, for you who are participating here, you're most welcome to write questions in the chat. This will be a kind of um, discussion going on between me, Tim and Christina, and you're most welcome to join. So just point your question in the chat and we will bring them forward. And we, of course, also will have time at the end for some more questions, if you prefer to do it that way. So the paper which we will base the discussion on here today is called Caught Between the Users and the Firm. How does identity conflict affect uh, employees' innovative behavior? So Tim and Christina, would you mind bringing us up to speed for the ones that have not read the paper yet? What is it about? Yeah, thanks Jenny. And also thanks for Ispen and Sim uh, for inviting us. Yeah, so the paper is on internal or embedded lead users, how we call it. And um, Christina and I have been doing research on user innovation. So on the notion that not only firms, but also users innovate. And we have been especially focusing on internal users. So you are working for a firm, but you're also using the firm's products. So you're a skateboarder in a skateboarding firm or a gamer in a gaming firm. And we found that there's lots of benefits for employing these internal users. So creativity and they bring in use knowledge and they also reach out to external communities. But we also realized that in interviews that these people were not always really 100% happy in those firms. And this was opposed to what we thought, right? So they kind of make their, their passion, their profession, so they should be really happy. And, um, but instead they were somehow often torn between what the firm wanted and what they wanted for themselves, what they wanted for the community. 
and this is actually what we're investigating in this paper. So we wanted to know how the job satisfaction and innovative behavior of these users actually relates to the conflict that they perceive between the firm and the user community that, that they're in. And we, we expected that um, job satisfaction and innovation is especially harmed if um, those employees identify with the firm and the users and there's some kind of conflict between these two identifications. And um, the same expectation is also what we, uh, we had the same expectation for impact on innovative behavior. So that's basically the, the gist of the paper. Thank you very much, Tim. We, we thought it was a highly relevant paper to focus upon in this ses session through both the theoretical and practical relevance, which you motivated here, but also the way in, through, in terms you collected data in new ways. And, and what we as editors especially liked with this paper is that we know that so many organizations struggle today. It's a constant discussion that how we can reap these benefits from outside, um, both in terms of knowledge and information, but also when it comes to persons and how they relate to this setting. And they get more knowledge, information, and insights and ideas on this, and how that affects innovations, uh, organizations' innovation outcomes is an area that is of constant importance for uh, the innovation management field, and especially for journals such as CIM. Um, but given all of this focus, at the end of the day, it is what you bring up here. We're talking about individuals here. Um, employees, uh, there are people at the end of those nice reasoning and argumentations here and that are likely to identify in different ways as you bring up here as well. So from our perspective, this is both theoretically and practically a very relevant, relevant piece. Uh, and how you go about this when we talk about methods here is very interesting because you have your motivation and your ideas that we need to be able to explore how these individuals are affected through being both inside and outside the organization, how that affects the job satisfaction and in turn then innovativeness as you do here. And you talk about this dual identity that actually can both belong to the focal firm and, and outside here. Um, so when you have such a question and such a research motivation, then we end up in this situation where we don't always talk that much about them, that the, the closeness to empirics sometimes also sets the frame of what we are doing. And that's why I thought your paper was especially interesting to discuss in this setting, because you, you came with this motivation and then you went out finding these individuals in, 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 in a rather new way here. And you started by looking at, um, at what kind of industries that would be relevant to get this information on, on um, uh, that had this kind of position. And you had two criteria here. Would you mind starting here? How come you selected the industries you did here? Um, yeah, so maybe I can uh, um, uh, talk about this a little bit. So. Um, as you explained, uh, Jenny, we were looking for people who experienced these dual identities, mm -hmm. uh, um, identify, uh, identifying with the firm, but also with the customers outside. So we um, thought it would be good to go for industries where uh, many employees are what Tim called embedded users. So they are using the products that their firm produces. They are, they, are, they are a user and they are part of the producing company because thus they would um, have personal use experience, they would probably have relationships with other users um, and they would uh, be more likely to feel allegiance to, to other users. Um, 
so if you think about this, uh, I think this is a huge uh, phenomenon because um, you know a lot of um, car drivers, if you like, work for BMW, right? And a lot of uh, cereal eaters who work for uh, Nestle, uh, and a lot of uh, fashion connoisseurs uh, like to work for fashion companies and so on. Um, so it's a big phenomenon. Um, but uh, our second uh, criterion was um, that we were um, um, looking for industries where the use of the product is a joint activity. Um, so it's not just, you know, everybody eating their cereal uh, quietly by themselves, but, but uh, if people relate to other users, they know other users, they uh, undertake joint use activities that would uh, more like uh, would be more likely to increase the identification and the, the allegiance they feel to these other users. So those were our two um, criteria, uh, industries with uh, embedded uh, users and with uh, joint use activities. And based on this, um, we chose uh, the mountain biking industry and online gaming because both of these yeah, satisfy the two criteria I just uh, laid out. Thank you very much. When you found these two industries that you want to go further into, did you have experience within those fields before or was, were these new to you? Um, there, there is prior research on um, those industries um, giving support to what I just said um, yeah. in terms of uh, usage patterns and so on. Some of this is uh, uh, our own work, some of this is other uh, work of, of other colleagues. Mm -hmm. And then you decided to use a professional network to access your data here or to, to find your empirics, rather say. Uh, and you used a network that's called Sing, uh, similar to LinkedIn. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How did you do this? Mm, yes. So first, um, so we were looking at uh, pretty specific types of people, right? We were trying to find these internal lead users or embedded lead users. Um, and um, we know that this data is somehow hard to get. And at the same time, we were also trying to find um, some, some sensitive data in the sense, right? People would be talking about how they feel and how they feel in relationship to the firm and job satisfaction and so on. So when thinking about it, we realized that maybe it's not the perfect way to just attract a single firm and do a very big study within the firm. And also we didn't find a firm which, which wanted to do this. So we thought, well, maybe it's a, it's a nice way to just do it externally, right? So we saw these, um, these social networks, professional uh, social networks popping up and more and more people were coming on those platforms, especially um, on, on in Germany and, uh, at the time. And uh, we realized that maybe this could be a, a chance to, to, to sample people, to find people and to ask them about these sensitive issues. And um, they also sign up with, with their name and their role and occupation, but also the, the, the firm that they belong to, right? So at the time, and I think it's still the, this way, firms also had sites where you could um, select yourself into as a user. So we knew, well, they are part of this firm and they are doing this and that job. And um, yeah, this this way we decided that we would actually try this and just um, just contact people via via this um, the social network. And um, what we did, and I think it's the same on on most social networks. There's some kind of cap of of how much you can spam people, right? So there's some kind of cap of how much you can um, uh, approach people. And this is why we uh, got a professional account, like a recruiter account. And this allowed us then to, to sample, identify people within firms, identify firms first, and then 
yeah, um, send our survey to these people and also interact with these people. And um, was yeah, the dealers, not only the data, but also interactions, right? They also would write us back and some of them, some of these contacts then still led into interviews afterwards. And so, so this was, um, yeah, somehow in a nice way to collect data at that time for us. And because it seems that such an, um, um, a promising venue to, to access this material. And we have had some studies before looking at different types of social net, professional social networks. Uh, but the problem is of course always that how, how we can use the data, how we can validate the data uh, and how we actually can get the responses that we want here. We can discuss response rates uh, forever uh, when it comes to different studies and different types of settings here. You have 15% in this one. Um, and I suggest that we directly move into that when you access this data, when you found these individuals that you are interested in these industries and you move further into assessing the, the validity of this uh, data that you accessed here, uh, you do a lot of uh, careful and, and well thought routines here to secure that the kind of data that you get is, is in a good way. And I would just like to say in this, that, you know, generally speaking, it's of course, as a researcher, it seems like a very nice area to reach empirics easily, but to secure that the data you get actually uh, can help you answer those research questions you have. It's not that easy. It's quite a lot of work uh, reading your paper on this as well. So when it comes to especially bias treatment here, you do a lot of careful steps in this paper, which I truly appreciate. And I think that can also help many that are moving into this stream of research, trying to reach empirics in this way. So would you like to develop a little bit on this? You talk about non-response bias, for example. Um, how do you treat that? Um, yeah, so we, we looked at three types of biases in the paper. Maybe I can start with the non-response uh, yeah. uh, bias. So there, um, I guess we, we employed the standard uh, procedure um, um, whereby, you know, the assumption is that the non-respondents, for whom obviously you don't have answers, uh, are mm -hmm. more similar to uh, the late respondents than to the early respondents. So you divide your sample into the early respondents and late respondents and see uh, a check whether there are any um, significant differences between uh, those two um, uh, groups uh, when it comes to the, the, the main variables of the, the study. So that's, that's what we did there. Um, it's a standard procedure and, and yeah, there were no significant differences. Fortunately for us. Mm. Yeah, 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 it's good, good for you in this way. But then I went on looking a little bit more sampling bias. What is that? What What is a sampling bias? And how did you treat it? So actually what we wanted to show uh, is that the that the sample we have is not significantly different from the population we were that we wanted to infer to, right? So we wanted to see whether there's some kind of systematic difference in the sample we're actually collecting. Um, which is usually tough to do, but we were um, lucky on that one in the sense that after approaching these firms, one of the firms said, uh, well, we're also going to um, send out the survey internally. We like this idea. So we had for this one firm also additional data that was not collected via the social network, but collected internally. And we would, we would know which data was which data. So first, what we tried to, to find out is whether those internal employees who responded via email were somehow different than those who responded on the social network, right? To see whether there's some kind of systematic difference here. 
And then we just do very simple t-tests to see whether there's some significant differences and we don't find any. So that was, was good news. And then what we did in addition on, uh, on, on firm level, so to say, check whether the individuals of, of that firm who, who also sent out the survey, whether those individuals answered differently than those individuals that we got from the, from the network itself to see whether there's any significant um, differences. And also we don't uh, find these differences. So then we were at least uh, to some extent sure that, um, that, the, that the sample we collected also reflected the overall population that we wanted to, to look into basically, yeah. Would that be something, if, if you would do this kind of study again, do you think there was something in how you selected these firms that made this um, assessment easier for you? Um, or um, would this be easy to do on any firm? Yeah. Because it sounds very easy when you talk about it, but I know there's a lot of work behind it where you, where you need to access all of these different data points. Uh, yeah, it's a little tricky because we wanted to have specific, uh, specific individuals in the in this uh, sample, but at the same time, so that means we had to find specific types of yeah. individuals and firms, mm -hmm. but at the same mm -hmm. time, we wanted to know whether these specific people we find are actually uh, very different from the from the overall uh, population. Mm -hmm. So I think there's in general already some kind of bias um, mm -hmm. in, in those people who are on, on such platforms, but I think this is becoming less and less the case because I think nowadays, but I, this may, of course, also be academia mm -hmm. bias, right? Almost everyone is on, on LinkedIn or, or Xing. Mm -hmm. um, it, it might be a little different for, for other industries, but I, mm -hmm. I, I think that the, that, the, that the overlap between those on, on the platforms and those actually working, uh, the, the population of, of the general employees, so to say, that they become more overlapped um, uh, than the less overlap. At least yeah. this would be my my hypothesis, so to say. Yeah. Uh, one could do an assumption as well that maybe those are the same persons that would answer a survey, even if we send it through the regular ways to the company. That's to say. That's we, there is, there is, uh, we always have to be a little bit careful about this as well, how we interpret it. But at the end of the day, we need the data as well. And then we need to Definitely. do as good as we can to, to, um, to assess the potential biases. And then you go through common method bias as well. Yeah, yeah. Then we also go regular. through common yeah. method bias mm -hmm. in that sense that's not 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 specific to the, the the data collection on the network, and here we're just trying to um, kind of use all the standard tests um, and also mm -hmm. survey designs to to overcome method uh, overcome common method bias. So comes the, the bias that rooted in the fact that we only ask one individual here. And we do lots of tests, um, marker variable tests, and then we create an unobserved latent um, factor. Um, these are also rather well described. Um, in the end, I think, but one also has to be open and, and to admit that you can do all the tests. Um, but if we would do this again, I think one thing that we would try to do is some kind of second, second source to make it, um, yeah, to make the study more solid at the same time it's hard to have a, jacket, a second source judge how happy you are at work and stuff like this, right? So I think for the innovative behavior, one could try that for, for judging how, how you identify with the firm or how happy you are. I think we just need self-ratings there. Yeah. And there we think our method is actually good because we come from external, right? And we don't, we're not part of the firm. Yeah. <laughs> and have you, have you, oh, sorry, Katya, go sorry. Uh, to, to add to this just a little bit, I mean, 
um, um, the uh, you know that um, um, higher level interactions are more difficult to detect in the presence of, of common method bias. So in that sense, our our um, findings are solid in the sense that uh, uh, we do find uh, find a three way interaction, and it, that would be very unlikely to. Uh, uh, materialize uh, uh, in if there were um, uh, this uh, problem. Um, so in that sense, I think sometimes it's like a um, uh, um, yeah sort of uh, uh, standard reviewer point, right? You, you know, couldn't there be common method bias? But sometimes it's um, actually not so much of a problem in the sense that uh, uh, it can even. Um, um, go our way in the sense that uh, yeah. you know we do we do find um, the three-way interaction here. Um, I have uh, a different paper where our point was that the absence of um, a relationship um, and 